Thank you, Dr. Riley. Thanks to Dr. Gingrich and CMDS for having me. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. I am a teacher. I teach at a college in Ottawa, as you know. Jesus was a teacher. You are healers. Jesus was a healer. To what temptation are you and I both susceptible? The temptation of thinking that just because we are teaching and healing, then in our work we are, in some way, following in Jesus' footsteps by working at our respective occupations. Because, after all, he chose to do our work. Our professions existed before Jesus. Then he chose to involve himself with them. He put the mark of his approval on them. Now, you are sharp, I believe, if you are thinking, well, maybe he put the mark of his approval on what physicians are doing, restoring health, more clearly than on what teachers are doing. Because health is health. We restore what he restored, health. But do you teach what he taught? Or to put it even better, do you teach to the same end that Jesus did? Now that, I think, is a very shrewd question. That is just the question to ask. I agree entirely that it isn't the activity of teaching that makes someone a teacher as Jesus was a teacher. It is the end, the intent of that teaching. It is only if I am trying to do in teaching what he was doing in teaching that I am a teacher in the footsteps of Christ. He didn't put the mark of his approval on what I do if my objective is not his objective. So I'm going to presume that you and I are agreed on this point. And you notice, I hope, that this could apply to medicine too. It is only if you are trying to do in healing what he was trying to do, what he was doing, that you are a healer in the footsteps of Christ. He didn't put the mark of his approval on healing if your objective in healing is not his objective. And I could say the same to preachers. They preach, and Jesus preached. They preach the gospel as he did. But it is only if they are trying to do in preaching what he was doing in preaching, that they are preachers in the footsteps of Christ. So the starting point for us this morning will not be what is healing. It is rather, why did Jesus heal? To what end? We could just presume to know, of course, what might we say without looking into this. When Jesus is healing, is the point of his healing to do good? Yes, he went about doing good and healing. Sight is good. Jesus restores it. Suffering is bad. He removes it. He makes well, restores wellness. And isn't wellness wholeness? To be without a natural power is to be incomplete. To be without a natural power is to be incomplete. I suspect I made some of you cringe a little by saying that. 
I cringed when I wrote it. Sight is good, yes. Suffering is bad. Well, to be without a natural power is to be incomplete, in a way. But don't you agree that this kind of talk is very dodgy? In Aristotelian logic, which was a fundamental part of education up until the 19th century, there is a basic distinction between the properties and powers of a thing. This is the Reverend Isaac Watts, author of famous hymns like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Watts was also the author of the most famous logic textbook in the English language for 200 years. This is it. Logic or the Right Use of Reason in the Enquiry After Truth, 1724. Here, Watts says this. Qualities that are called accidents, accidental features, are those that are not necessary to the being of a thing, for the subject may be without it, and yet remain of the same nature that it was before. Water can be liquid, but it doesn't have to be. It can be ice. And either way, it is still water. In fact, here on page 25, Watts gives examples of accidental features of human beings, which I think you will find quite interesting. Learning, justice, folly, sickness, health are the accidents of a man. You are a human being, whether sick or well. Perhaps you can be whole and sick. Some properties are essential to your being, but others are not. Is wellness of the body essential? If a person loses an eye or their face, she is no less a person. Is her wholeness diminished? If, however, a person were to lose an essential property, that would be a catastrophe. Is wellness of the body essential? What is? In fact, this very attention to essential features shows up in Jesus' own thinking. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The powers of salt to flavor food and to preserve food from spoiling rotting, are not incidental. They are the defining properties of salt. So that if salt loses these, it is no longer salt. It is no longer itself. What is this white stuff? Who knows? Throw it down like dirt and forget it. And look at this passage too. Christ says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire, to be cast down like nothing and forgotten. The hand and the foot are merely accidental features. Do we need them to be complete? There are even cases, Jesus is saying, where you are better off without the hand or the foot or it is a calamity to keep it. What case is that? 
If your hand costs you your soul, get rid of your hand. In fact, Jesus went further. If your entire body costs you your soul, get rid of your body. Fear what costs you your soul. If the price of keeping your body is your soul, protect your soul and let them kill your body. If you are not sure that that is what Jesus means here by these words, consider that he didn't say this only with words. He said it on the cross, to which he called all his followers. He let them kill his body so that he could be faithful to the Father. He sacrificed his body. He gave up his life. He did say, did he not, that if the world gives you this ultimatum, keep your body or keep your soul, then let your body go. And that is what he did. The church, his followers, have certainly understood him to say that. Do Christians ever get that ultimatum? Yes, they do. Soldiers walk into your church and say, spit on this Bible and renounce your God, or I will shoot you here and now. They have done so from the very start, as Jesus foretold. You will be tempted, of course, to embrace what you will think of as life. Are you wrong? Isn't it life? If you walk away from this scene, are you not alive? There are terms that these gentlemen will accept for you to keep your head. Should you keep it? What did Jesus say? Well, the verses immediately before the verse on salt, on the essential features, read, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a young saint. She's holding a palm frond, which is a badge of the martyr. The date palm is a special tree to the people of the Near East. Everything about it is useful. Its longevity and height far surpass human measure, so much so that in Mesopotamia it was regarded as a sacred tree. In Egypt, palm branches were a symbol of unending life and were carried in funeral processions. Its endurance and its green signal immortality, victory. Green is the color of life, the other color of life being red, and this saint wears both colors. But why are we looking at martyrs when we were asking, to what end did Jesus heal? Did Jesus heal because bodily wholeness, bodily function, biological life, or however we might choose to put it, is the main thing? No, he said it was not the main thing. And the saints understood him to say that. But you might say, flourishing is natural. And God is the author of nature. Life is good, and God wants good. Thriving biological life is a natural good. That is what God wants for us. Yes, God wants us to live. But this is not paradise. 
Something happened to paradise. We must be rescued from this place of trouble. And there is only one way. One way to life. One life. A victor has come who will save us from the problems of this world. He provided redemption for his people. Psalm 111. A victor has come who will save us from the problems of this world, one of which is that when we chase life, we get death. When we set our hearts on bodily wholeness, bodily function, and biological life, don't we lose something essential when we set our hearts on these things? This crowd of martyrs, all of whom went to their deaths, when that ultimatum, your body or your soul, was given to them by the world, all carry the reward of the martyr, which is what? It is life, true and lasting life. All of these are people who heard and believed what Christ was teaching and had faith, which is to say, lived as if what they claimed to believe were true. They all agree with the message of Matthew 5, blessed are the persecuted. Or Matthew 15, throw away what will separate you from God. As perhaps you are agreeing right now. But when the world turned on them and put their earthly lives in the balance, they chose what Jesus said was greatest. They chose what Jesus said was a blessing. They did not choose the blessing of biological life, more life on earth. So if we hear what Jesus teaches, it is really something quite different from wellness is wholeness. If our idea of wholeness comes from nature, isn't there a cultural or worldly idea of whole living? If we hear what Jesus teaches, wellness is really something quite different from optimal biological wellness. Mother Teresa was not pursuing that kind of wellness by living in poverty with the sick. Is wellness or wholeness optimized biological life, or however you want to put it? Biological life is something natural, made by God, God-given. Surely it is good, but don't make it your absolute, Jesus is saying. Because we are not just organisms. There is something higher than that that is also God-given. And that thing, that wholeness, that wellness is essential. Jesus is saying that wellness is more than biological wholeness because sometimes you should sacrifice your limb, your life, for its sake. Wellness is wholeness, yes. But in what sense? Life is more than thriving on this earth. It is thriving in eternity. We've been looking on the positive side at wellness. What about the negative side? Suffering. The Gospels say there is disease and pain, and that Jesus healed both. So what about the idea that suffering is bad? Because Jesus ended suffering, wiped pain away, we could say that suffering is bad. 
But doesn't Jesus leave us in the record of his life and acts a more complex view of this too? Indeed, he takes suffering away. But doesn't he really say the same thing about pain that he said about the body? The body is good, but you can overvalue that goodness and make goodness, earthly goodness, cost you everything. You can cling to it and lose your soul, and that is a calamity. Doesn't he really say that about pain too? Pain is bad, but you can overvalue its badness. That is, you can give escape from suffering too big a place in your life. And again, make earthly goodness, this time freedom from suffering, cost you everything. Well, does Jesus say any such thing? Jesus called and calls all his followers to the cross. And the cross is an engine of suffering. It is supremely well made for that. It is a delivery system of protracted suffering ending in death. Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That line appears in all the synoptic gospels. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I'm not saying that he's calling us to physical pain as if physical pain were itself important. But isn't the call to the cross the call to hardship, which may involve physical pain? Doesn't the cross involve giving things up, giving good things up, and possibly even mourning them? When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is he not saying that those who mourn for the loss of, what, bad things? No, good things. Those who mourn for others they have lost, or maybe also for the health they have lost, the fertility they have lost, or lost comfort, comfort that they have sacrificed for hardship, or security they have let go of out of trust in God. Is Jesus not saying that those who mourn for the loss of good things in this life will be comforted because there is more to life than these things. This is all good, yes, but there's more to life than these things. Greater comforts, greater goods will be theirs. In fact, does Jesus not say that your comfort can cost you your soul? I don't remember where he says that, you're thinking. But surely he said that with his own life on the cross, to which he called all his followers, not just the disciples, whosoever will come after me, all. The cross is an engine of mourning ending in death, and the death is death to this world. Dying to this world is Jesus' own way, the way of this Savior, of the one who comes to save us. To follow him and be freed 
from the potential disaster of this life does not mean disdaining every pleasure and comfort, but it does mean having no requirement of pleasure and comfort, having no vision of life as a place of pleasure and comfort, which, frankly, this world seems wound up to disappoint. When comfort is taken out of life, is life ruined? Is there no comfort to be found? Is wellness, is a good life, that is a life of material comfort, a well-stocked cupboard, a well-appointed home, etc., really freedom from pain? Aren't we called away from that vision of life by the cross? Isn't Jesus saying that the comfort of the world is an illusion. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, which is to say, there is no escape from being reduced to nothing by the world, but this way, his way, which is the way of the cross, which is not a path to this world completeness. Dying to this world means taking the proper measure of this world so that should it happen that mourning overcomes you, you have lost your health, your youth, your strength, your spouse, a child. Should it happen that mourning overcomes you and don't you have cause to mourn right now? Yet in this mourning, you are comforted by something more secure than this world can furnish. There is a more perfect comfort given to you even now, even in the midst of your sorrows. You see it here in this picture. The love and the embrace of God. The comfort of God's love. Wellness is comfort, yes, but not earthly comfort. True wholeness, true life involves seeking comfort in some deeper sense. Wellness is comfort in the perspective of eternity, which we can know even now. And Christians in the past well knew it. This altarpiece of the crucifixion was ordered, commissioned by Christians for a 16th century hospital. To the left and right of the central scene are a martyred saint and a saint who left the comforts of the world behind for God, and yet was assailed by many afflictions in mind and body. Think about what hospitals you may know of consider appropriate decoration for ailing people. In the early 1500s, Many in this region of Europe suffered from ergotism caused by tainted rye. There was a fungus called ergot, you know more about this than I do, I suspect, that grows on the grains of grasses, and when it gets into the blood, it has painful effects. Burning and convulsions, hallucinations, the psychoactive ingredient in ergot is LSD, Gangrene and loss of limbs, ergot produces a vasoconstrictor, leading ultimately to death. Why was this painting put in that hospital? Were the patients told, suffer like Jesus suffered, 
God intended you to suffer. What this image told them was that this world is the valley of the shadow of death. Suffering is upon us, and yet the suffering does not eclipse the life. The suffering does not eclipse the man who is the life and who shows the way to life and whose way to life is to depart from this world, to be in the world but not of it. And those who mourn shall be comforted. And so Christians in the past also set before themselves images of suffering saints. This is another wing of the same altarpiece. Images of those afflicted with physical and mental torments. And also images of saints who imposed the cross upon themselves and dying to this world lived a life of deprivation and hardship, giving freely of all they had. Anthony, whom you see here at the left, took Jesus' advice to the rich man and gave away all his wealth. He was a rich man. Lived without comfort and yet amidst this hardship, knew the sweetness, the beatitude, the blessedness of comfort, because they lived already while still in the valley of tears, lived already in the kingdom. So to what end did this man heal? Was it to eliminate suffering, mourning, because that is bad and God wants good? Did he heal to make our bodies strong and healthy? But strength in this life is just the metaphor a teaching aid for Jesus. Notice the importance to Christ of weakness. He comes to the weak to strengthen them. But notice how much his destiny, at least in this world, is like their fate, their helplessness. Christianity is a religion whose symbol is the cross and whose leader appears to us again and again in art in the posture of a victim, a patient. The word patient means someone to whom a thing happens. That is the meaning of passion, feelings that overtake you, that you do not control. The passion, as in the passion of Christ, is a series of events that happen to Jesus to which he submits. The opposite of passion is action. In the passion, Jesus does not act, or rather, his action is to submit, to let it all be done to him. Christ is a patient. He is not one who seeks the kind of power and control it seems we want in this life. He lets go of all his earthly advantages. He is one who does not seek comfort, but welcomes the hardship of his path. He does not claw back comfort, but lets go of everything the good life seems to entail. Why? For the sake of life. For true life itself. So I repent then of that impulse to answer the question, To what end did Jesus heal? 
by the promptings of my heart, since my heart wants to say things like, healing is good, health is good, wellness is good, wellness is wholeness, suffering is bad. I give that up. That might be the right way to answer a different question. To what end do you heal? To what end do physicians like yourselves heal? If you say to me, but health for a doctor just is, has to be health in this life. Wellness is this world wellness, mental well-being in this life. Because it is in this life that we are called to medicine. If you say that, then I am ready to agree with you. But pay attention now to one thing. And that is that any activity focused on life in this world is in danger of thinking in terms of this world. And isn't there then a danger of seeing what Jesus is doing in this world terms? Since we have more time, let's finish by looking at this in an entirely different way. To what end does Jesus heal? Let's not just presume to know what Jesus is doing by healing. Let's stop explaining him ourselves. If we ask, what is Jesus doing when he is healing, better than presuming to know, is hearing what he said. Because he answered that question. His answer is very clear from the scriptures. It would be interesting to look at the verses that lay this out, but we can't do everything and I don't want to wear you out. So let me take the risk of summing up, to some extent, what they tell us. Jesus heals not for the sake of healing, but to prove something. To prove two things. He heals bodies, he even raises from the dead, to prove that he has the power of God. To whom will he prove this? To those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that is very few indeed. The people who see him do these things and hear of his deeds and whose eyesight and hearing are perfect do not know who he is. They follow him, but they do not know who he is. Even those who follow him are blind. They do not know what is going on. Now this is interesting for us because what this means is that whole bodies in this world are not enough. Eyesight is not enough. Perfect hearing is not enough. This world is in serious trouble. So he heals to prove that he has the power of God, but the proof is not the solution. Second, Jesus heals to prove that the Messiah has come, as foretold in the scriptures. God would provide redemption for his people. Now that proof will not take hold either. Perfect eyesight and hearing, the priest's knowledge of the scriptures, the Torah and the prophets, are not going to let that message take hold either. But it was said that the Messiah would come to heal. So that prophecy will be fulfilled. But people are blind and deaf, though their bodies are whole. So when we say he heals to prove something, we have to say, He's really only offering a sign. 
But what good will it do? Because people are blind and deaf, though their bodies are whole. People cannot see that Jesus is Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior. They cannot see that he is God incarnate. People cannot believe. We won't take time to establish this, but let's look at just a few verses. When he was traveling, two blind men were following him. They asked for mercy, but Jesus didn't heal them out of the tenderness of his heart. In fact, he seemed almost ready to refuse them because he put a question to them, which sounds something like a condition of their healing. Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. The condition of his healing, on this occasion anyway, is really spelled out for us. According to their faith, they can be healed. This story in Matthew 9 follows another story of healing in Matthew 8 involving a leper. When he heals the leper, he does not say, go bring others like yourself so I may heal them too. Instead, Jesus said to the leper, see that you say nothing to anyone, but show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. He's healing to prove something, and he's starting at the top with the priests. He wants to prove something to them. The proof in question has to do with the fulfillment of the prophecy in the law and the prophets, which would be known to the priests. Ten verses on in the same chapter, we are told of that prophecy. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus is healing, yes, to bring relief, but to show that the prophecy of the salvation of Israel is being fulfilled. When he heals the son of an official at Capernaum, the Gospel of John says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Healing is a sign or a proof that Jesus has the power of God, that the power of the Lord was with him to heal. If healing is a sign or a proof, a proof of what? We might want to say proof that he was God. But what did those who were healed by him take him to be? In Mark 3, we read that he healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It is also said that some fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. But who is it that can see? Who calls him the Son of God? It is unclean spirits. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Do the people see that? When he heals the widow's son, raises him from the dead, what do people say? A great prophet has arisen among us. 
And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus is showing to the Jews the prophesied signs of the Messiah, but it was also prophesied that the signs would not be seen. As he says very clearly when the topic of signs comes up. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except, except what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, his death and resurrection. But, and let's just leap ahead, the crucifixion has occurred. The body has vanished from the tomb. Christ is said to be alive. Are those signs enough? Jesus returns. He speaks with his own disciples. Are those signs enough? Their unbelief persists. They believe. Here he is, returned after the crucifixion, walking on the water as not a man, but they believe. And then they don't believe and sink into the sea. In the Gospel of John, we read, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John continues, Therefore they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And this is the really important point. You can see, your eyes are whole, your body is sound. What good does it do you? You saw him healing. You saw him raise the dead. You heard that he died and returned to life. What good has it done you? Jesus restores the minds and the bodies of the ill. And some believed. If, as some Christians have said, God came for the few. For those who could hear alone. Then you would think that the Gospels would focus on that limited success. But instead we keep hearing about the failure. About the proofs that failed. We keep hearing about people who were whole in body, but were blind and deaf to what is going on in Jesus' ministry. Because these proofs are only a part of what he came to give. They are only a part of the prophecy. The rest of the prophecy was that the Messiah would come to heal. To heal more deeply, to save people from their blindness, to restore life. When John wrote that it was prophesied by Isaiah that they could not believe, he is referring to Isaiah 6, in which God tells Isaiah, and notice what word turns up here, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, 
and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, it is hard to understand God's commission to Isaiah, go out and make them deaf. But what commentators say about this is that the prophet's ministry will have a hardening effect on people, many of whom will reject the good news. Prophets can do all they want to spread the word. In fact, as we know from Christ's ministry, prophets can perform absolute miracles. But this will not save people because their souls are sick. They are spiritually dead. That is the healing that has to happen. And let's try now to bring this to a conclusion, connect it all together, and answer our question. Jesus came to heal bodies and minds. Why does Jesus heal? To fulfill the prophecy that he would do so, and to fulfill the prophecy that healing people's bodies would not help because they are spiritually blind and deaf. You can be healed and made whole in body, and what good does it do you? You can be raised from the dead, and what good is that? Is that the best thing that ever happened to you? Lazarus is going to die again. The only person who didn't die again after being raised from the dead is Christ. And it is only if you follow him and free yourself from the tyranny of the good life, of the well body, of optimal health. Not free yourself from the well body, from the tyranny of the good life, the well body, optimal health, of the second chance at life. The chance that your life will not become the tragedy of those who can see but are blind, those who can hear but are deaf, those who can live but are dead. Is the good life good? Yes. Is the well body good? Is it good to have a well body? Yes. Is optimal health good? Is it good to have the best health you can have? Yes. Is it good to have a second chance at life, to be brought back to life after the heart attack? Absolutely. But it is all for nothing. It is all just smoke and wind. Nothing. If you have all that, and lose your soul. If you clutch at these things so much that you never throw away the benefits of living well, if you don't throw this life away by following the Messiah who shows you the way out, there is no evil in those good things. But there is evil in the way they become the focus of our lives. Because if they become the focus of our lives, then we have lost our lives. We have been killed off by them. It seems that we need to ask, when Jesus is healing, what is he doing? And that we should be careful about the obvious answer, which is that when Jesus is healing, he is producing health. He is making well, making whole. Is he? Some of these whole people are now in a lot of trouble because the wholeness that has been restored to them is going to cost them their lives. They're going to enjoy the bodies they now have. They're going to walk hither and yon with these new legs they've been given and get into all kinds of trouble. In fact, ask yourself this. When Jesus heals, 
What is the decisive action of healing? You know that it isn't applying a poultice of dirt and spit. You know that it is not the touch of his hand because he can heal at a distance. What is Jesus' healing action? If you think about this, you will realize that it is not anything he does to others. It is what he does to himself. Jesus heals on the cross. His decisive act of healing is going to the cross. Why does Jesus heal? To restore life, and the restoration of life is available only through the cross. I don't mean by this, life is really eternal life, and on the cross Jesus paid the price that gave it to us. Does real life begin only then, at our exit from this world? I also don't mean by this, life is really the righteousness that is imputed to us, since we are not really righteous, imputed to us when we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins. If we believe that, then we are declared righteous by God, and all our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, and we can live the good life now because God wants us to be happy. Beware of that message, that twisted way of getting us back to this world and freeing us from the cross is a perversion of the gospel. Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This life that he is talking about is freedom from the tyranny of the good things of this earth which are all vanity, fleeting wonders that will cost you your soul. The restoration of life is the way of the cross. When you look at the cross, you are looking at life. Your faith is marked by the sign of an instrument of torture, not because it is a macabre religion that fetishizes death, but because it is built around a paradox which is that what the world thinks is life is not life. Christianity is built around the paradox that the instincts that seem natural to us in our condition involve us in the pursuit of the good, the pursuit of worldly goods, and in our blindness, that instinct dooms us. But the Messiah has come to heal us with the cross. Jesus calls the faithful Christian to take up his cross and follow him, but that cross is not like a sign carried in a march, a sign that says something, that identifies the bearer. It is an instrument that does something. It's not like a sign that says something. The cross is an instrument that does something. It is not a banner, the Christian waves. It is a machine of unfreedom, a constraining device that the Christian nails himself or herself to, thus preventing him or her from chasing worldly goods. You are not going to walk hither and yon, nailed to a beam. The only thing that identifies the follower of Christ is the way this Christian is nailed up and not free to chase the goods of this world.
that and the willingness of this Christian to lose these so-called freedoms. The willingness to do that. Because there is no true life or wholeness in them. You have to throw this life away and let it all be taken from you. Your answer to the cross must always be yes. Can you do this? Yes, it is certainly not beneath me to do that. Can you help with this? Yes, because what I was going to do doesn't matter. Can you give that up? Can you give me this much time, that much money? Yes, because I don't need it myself. It is nothing. Can you give me your attention? Yes, because I was just keeping it for my own things, to boost the quality of my own life. And my life is mine to give away, not to keep. Can you tell me this? Can you tell me the truth about this? Yes, because what I would be guarding by keeping silence doesn't matter, is nothing. Can you join us in this? Yes, because it is a good project. It is a good thing to do, as I've just honestly admitted when I told you the truth. And all it will cost me to help you is time. And my time is just frittering away. I can redeem it by not clinging to it. That is the talk of one who is on the cross. And it is the only thing that identifies a follower of Christ. It shows the healing of our deafness and our blindness and our misery. That you let this life go is the one thing you will be discussing when the time comes to give an account of this life. It is the one test of whether you ever truly lived. Thank you.